Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. Our mission is to uncover what it takes to build a unicorn business. For Season 3, we're speaking to some of the best founders, many from unicorn companies, and asking them about their journey, operational insight, tips, and lessons they've learned along the way. Today's episode is with Jimmy Williams, co-founder and CEO of Urban Jungle. Urban Jungle is an insurtech for content and home insurance. They've raised over $22 million from Eka Ventures and some top angel investors. In this episode, we cover the launching of Urban Jungle, fundraising, metrics, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, Jimmy. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thanks very much for having me on. It's our pleasure. So, Jimmy, we're starting each episode for season three with a broad question, which is what does entrepreneurship mean to you? There's a couple of things that a lot of people think it is uh, that I disagree with or have found and not to be true. So what one thing is, it's not a get rich quick scheme. In fact, probably better described as a get rich quite slowly with a lot of hard work and an incredible amount of risk uh, scheme. So like, it's definitely not a get rich, get rich quick scheme. I think the other thing people often talk about is that it's the opportunity to be your own boss, particularly you know, with the topic of this podcast. This is about not building your own business, it's about building unicorns. Nearly everyone on this journey is going to go and raise venture capital. So as soon as you've raised venture capital, you've got a board, you've got people you're reporting to, you are not really your own boss anymore. So it's not that either. Um, so, so what is it? And like, for, for me, it's all about... Um, having a vision of the world or a version of the world that you want to make true and you want to make happen because it is so hard and because you've got to you know, push against the standard and what everyone else is doing, everyone constantly wants you just to copy what's out there and you have to try and rip up every, every rule book to, to get there. The only way you have the energy to do that is if you have this really strong vision of what you want the world to look like in the space that you're in. And so, yeah, from my point of view, you know, when we started the business, I was driven by the insurance industry is crap. I've had personal bad, bad experiences and I just want to make this not true anymore. And that's, you know, to be honest, what, what drives me. And I think that is for me, what like entrepreneurialism is, is about is like having something you want to build and building it, whether, you know, it could even not be in a company, right? That's not company specific, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. It's a great take on entrepreneurship. I wonder, um, whether you always thought you would be an entrepreneur or whether whether your sort of early career helped shape you as an entrepreneur. And I know that you were at OCNC and there's a sort of a group of you B2C founders, including Tom Blomfield, um, who were at OCNC. And I think there are a few others, can't remember who. But yeah, I wonder how your early career and, and actually your time at OCNC shaped you as an entrepreneur and whether you think that helped in your journey. Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good point. So yeah, Tom and I started on the same day uh, OCNC as our first sort of post uni job. But also yeah, people like James, who was one of the co founders of Funding Circle, Mandeep, who started Truver, if you've heard of that. So yeah, <clears throat> there was a group of us. Um, I think probably you start earlier than that, right? And kind of growing up on the background. So my my dad, I'm not sure you described him necessarily as an entrepreneur, but he did start a couple of small businesses. So he was a lawyer and he started his own law firm. And I think there is something that's somewhere in the back of your head about risk. So I know my wife, her, both her parents are teachers. So her dad's a university professor and her mom's a teacher. They had one single employer their whole life. To her, the principle of starting a business is absolutely nuts. 
like she, she cannot have it in her head that you could take that much risk with your career. Whereas for me, it's like, yeah, you know, that's what people do. They start businesses, they take some risks, there's some reward in that. So definitely there's like something that started there. Obviously started my career, yeah, in consulting. Like that was particularly driven by just a fascination with business. I've always really been interested in, so I studied economics at university, was never very interested in macroeconomics, was always interested in micro, like how do companies work? How do they make money? How do they differentiate from each other? And it kind of, you know, it's still, if I go to a shop and it's badly laid out, that really annoys me. Um, and I'm like, maybe I should write a letter to the CEO of this company and tell them how they need to reorganize this store to make a load more money. And then I'm like, no. Go straight to the CEO. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a bit busy for, I mean, you know, you sort of take yourself, I'm probably a bit busy for that. Maybe like, you know, when I retire or whatever, I can write all these letters. But so always like super interested in business and, you know, particularly interested in the kind of details of making a proposition really work. And it was interesting, I listened to your episode with Alex Chesterman the other day and the word he kept on saying all the time, which I totally agree with is proposition and just thinking about like, like sometimes you can get carried away with new business models or, you know, grand visions of this new world that you're going to create. But actually what often matters is the detail of how does your product fit together? Does it all make sense? Can someone navigate it well? Does it all add up to your brand? Like the, the details of the proposition really matter. So I've always been obsessed with that. And then, yeah, I think particularly making the jump out of consulting into that was very, like, uh, I guess, encouraged by the fact that those guys have done it. You know, when you see someone else you know do something, then you're like, okay, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And so, yeah, actually with, with Tom, the first thing I did when I was like, I think I'll probably do this entrepreneurial thing. I like text Tom and say, let's go for a beer is this fun was my sort of basic question to him to which he was like, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> but I went, went ahead with it anyway. But yeah, just having those kind of, yeah, I guess, role models of people you've seen do something is, is definitely impactful. And you mentioned earlier that you'd had a bad experience that sort of led you to wanting to fix insurance. So what was that sort of experience? When did you realize that this is what I'm going to do? And what did you do to get started? Because I think a lot of people probably sit on ideas. Philip from Zilch said entrepreneurship sort of biased to action. And how do you get started? So what did you do to take that leap? Yeah, um, good question. So I guess my, my pain accumulated. Uh, it wasn't like a one light bulb moment. So I think the first thing was... We were in a house share in London when we first moved to town and no one would offer us insurance because we were in a house share and we were, you know, we thought good risk. We were nice people. We had the odd party. But that was about it. But literally no one would insure us. And I was like, that's weird. Why is no one doing that? Again, like a propositional point, right? Why would you not help this group of people? Then I had this car insurance claim where my insurer literally shipped me to this third party that tried to fleece me for all of the money and like use me to get money out of other people and make like claims for whiplash that I didn't have. And I was going phone calls constantly for the next three years about, you know, all this weird stuff that I could do for, with my insurance. I was like, this is totally broken. And then actually I started at OCT doing some insurance stuff. And I think getting into the sector and speaking to the people in it and what was totally crazy or was remains totally crazy about the sector is everyone knows it's broken. It's not like people are like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, it's really bad that we do that, isn't it? But, you know, everyone does it, so you've got to, got to do it that way. And I think 
It's because the people in charge are, are dining out on it. You know, they're taking their margin and having beers at lunch. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I've, been, I've been trying to like, that definitely was my kind of incoming assumption. I've been trying to reconcile that with like reality. I think it's, it's less that they're like fundamentally nice people and they're like well motivated, but they just, the people in charge are just money people. So they're just thinking about how do I make the most money? How do I squeeze margin out of everywhere? And not thinking about what does a customer want? What experience do people want? How is this changing? How do new customers think about this in a different way to old customers? So I'm going to give them a break on its carelessness rather than malice, but <laughs> like who, who knows? And then I think your other question was about how did, how did I get started? So I think some, some tech founders are like, when they start out, there is only one thing like they know exactly the, the one thing you know when I quit my job was like I want to do this entrepreneurial thing it sounds like an adventure and I had two or three ideas that I was knocking around with they were all stuff I'd like had personal experience of and looked at but yeah a lot of it was looking at those two or three you know opportunities turning them over looking at is there as any investor remotely interested in this area was definitely one thing I looked at you know, are there any other examples of early versions of this around the world that I can sort of learn from? And definitely that's where I got to insurance. It just felt like the industry was, knew it was crap. Investors were saying, hey, this, this insurance industry is crap. Maybe someone should do something about it. And there were a couple of businesses starting to pop up, but they hadn't really sort of broken out yet. So that's what really kind of inspired me to sort of give it a go. You know, one thing I did, which is very specific, if you think, if you think your audience are like thinking about doing this, is I definitely recommend so I went freelance in the industry that I wanted to disrupt. So I became a freelance consultant after Luma Consulting and basically went and worked at Money Supermarket for a while and did a couple of other things in the insurance space. That was incredibly helpful, like disproportionately mega helpful because I then had that on my CV so I could talk to everyone about how, you know, how I'd work there. It gave me time where I was getting paid. I was working on the business and thinking about the business and thinking about the problem but the clock wasn't really ticking yet on my savings or, you know, anything else that I might be losing. So like, that was definitely a pro. And then that also, the big thing for me was when I quit my job, I didn't have a co-founder. So it gave me time to sign up my co-founder, Greg, you know, and, and get that, that all going. And then for me, actually getting Greg, persuading Greg as the first person who's like this you know, amazing tech superstar, he has this incredible CV, persuading him that this might be a good idea. That was the watershed moment for me. Because I was like, okay, someone who's not me, thinks this is a decent idea, that means I should probably do something here. And also, I mean, what's amazing is I was working on things like on my laptop and not really doing that much, to be honest, uh, on, on the business. But then as soon as I had Greg, it was like, okay, someone's expecting some stuff out of me. So I was sending him business plans and thoughts of what we could do with the product and suppliers we should be speaking to. And suddenly, because there was another person that's not me, this whole thing became uh, an entity. So how did you, how did you find... Greg and persuade it because you know that that is the first step that many founders will take I suppose often you would sort of have a meeting of minds with someone and an idea would come out of that but the other way of starting businesses is your way so how, how did you sort of go about that incredibly deliberately I was like this person's probably going to be somewhere in my network so let's be very deliberate about that so I drew up a list of everyone I knew who remotely worked in technology I mean, the good thing about having already quit my job was I was pretty flexible, so I'd go and have lunch and coffee with anyone I liked whenever. And yeah, just, just networked. And every person I went to have a coffee with, I asked them if they knew anyone, and then they knew at least one person, and then I went and had a coffee with them. 
like Greg, actually, I, I was really good friends with his wife at university and did kind of know him before. But I guess, yeah, if I hadn't done that whole process, I would never have realized that he had just quit his job and was looking for a new challenge. And once you do this stuff, you, you can't wait for serendipity. You've got to be like very, very deliberate about the one problem I have is I don't have a co-founder. That's my number one problem. And that's my only problem. I'm going to solve that first. Then we'll think about the next thing. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, we love this kind of advice on riding unicorns, practical advice on how to start a business. So that's great. So what is Urban Jungle doing differently to existing providers? Yeah, so there's um, there's three things effectively that makes different. So first of all, it's just, I guess, what you'd expect of a challenger tech startup is just being really customer centric. So our observation was that the big insurers are very, very generic. Like pick your insurance company that begins with A and their insurance policy is going to all look the same as each other. It's basically no difference. And no, no one's ever spoken to a customer ever. So let's turn that on its head. Let's talk to customers a lot. Let's build for what they want. Let's make it flexible. Let's make it modular and actually have something that is tailored to what customers want now, like young, particularly younger customers. So, so that's, that's a big factor of what we do. And that, that kind of bleeds into our products being really different to, uh, to the big guys, particularly in terms of their flexibility. And then there's two things on the tech side. So one is we automate everything. So if you think about your big insurer, typically they've got these huge call centers with lots of people picking up the phones. There's a very small customer operations team here picking up phones and giving a very, very high service, but the tech is doing most of the work. And as a customer, you can basically do everything you want online. So really averaged you know, tech to, to reduce that, what is like one of the biggest cost uh, elements of an insurer. And then the both of which you might see as a customer, then there's a third bit you can't see as much as a customer, which is fraud is this really big problem in insurance. And we use, uh, effectively use AI to spot fraud in customers' behavior. So whenever they come on our site, there are these, these sort of structured fraudsters that are buying with the intent to commit fraud. And it's kind of low-level organized crime type thing. And we can, in the way they interact with our site and the behavior they use using AI, we can spot that fraud and then Say no to those customers so that genuine customers come through. That's actually really important to us overall because we have this sort of one of, one of our goals is around financial inclusion. Uh, essentially, what happens a lot is the, the insurance industry is full of fraud. Everyone kind of knows that. What the big guys tend to do is they'll just decline huge swathes of the population. So, particularly lower income postcodes, it's very, very hard to get cover because the big insurer is just like, oh, there's quite a lot of claims there. I don't know why, but I'm just not going to cover it. So what we can do, because we can spot fraudsters in any given demographic, we can underwrite any demographic. And that means we can run really high eligibility and help lots of different customers. And Jimmy, you've raised, well, Crunchbase says you've raised over $22 million from people like Eka Ventures and Mundi Ventures, which is a Spanish fund, and also some top angels. So how far into launching with Greg did you raise your first round? And what was that experience like? Your first VC round, I should probably say, because you had a lot of success with angels. So when did the first VC come in? And yeah, what was that experience like? Yeah, so again, keeping it super practical. So we did the first first bit with angels, as you say, and, and there is in the UK this kind of benefit of EIS tax relief that means that it is, in our experience, probably easier to, to raise from, from that group. And we did have offers from kind of C-stage VCs from earlier than we eventually took one but i think you know certainly at the time we were ducking and diving on the proposition a lot and like testing a lot of things and i think we just kind of felt like 
some of the VCs were had more of a prescription, like they wanted us to pursue a very specific strategy and not divert from that. Whereas we were kind of more like, we're going to change the strategy once a quarter and see, see what happens. And so that was why we sort of did the angel thing for perhaps a bit longer than we could have done. And, and actually also, I think the CD ecosystem in, in the UK or Europe in general is definitely like evolving really quickly and was smaller a couple of years ago when we were starting than it, than it is now. So probably perhaps would have done something a bit differently, you know, had I, had I done it now. So the first, yeah, the first institutional investor we brought on was Eka. I think, again, bringing on VCs, like a lot of people say that you should like run this process, meet everyone in five minutes and make it super high P and then like, you know, choose, choose the best of what, of what falls. I think that is true for this kind of 10 to 20% of max hype companies that are in the news every day. I think the reality for most other people is actually the relationship building is more important. So particularly with the UK guys, we've known them for, I don't know, at least a year before we actually kind of made, you know, made the jump and actually came in on an investment. I guess term sheet would have been less than that, but kind of what we know, know that. And then similarly with the Monday guys, we got to know them over a period of time and then they got excited about the business and, and kind of came in. So I think, you know, the question a lot of founders have is should I, what's the split between A, always be raising uh, and then B, run a process? I think there is a happy medium between the two um, and it's called take a coffee whenever it's on offer and there's no harm in meeting someone for a coffee and getting to know them and uh, or meeting them at a conference, maybe in person these days. But when you're raising, be raising and then be very clear that you've got a process and you're going to go through it. Yeah, I think it's really difficult that there are so many conflicting opinions from really credible sources. And, you know, you you read from like YC who say either you should be raising or you shouldn't be. And then you hear from founders saying the relationship is super important. So I think I think there are different routes that can work no matter who you are, because also it's so dependent on what kind of founder you are. If you're one of those founders who's happy to just absolutely smash out a process and hype your company up loads, then maybe that's the approach to sort of take a really condensed process. But if you're not, then the other strategy is probably better. Yeah, and I think um, the, the thing that is challenging as a founder, especially around fundraising, is everyone's got their advice. Everyone's got their their small sample opinion. And, you know, certainly in Europe, there aren't many people who've done it multiple times. Like very, 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 very few and the ecosystem changes every week, like new people are entering. So I think you've got to feel your way. And I think, you know, in, in some instances, one of the things I found most helpful is having a bit of, like we mentioned the ACNC guys earlier, who are very helpful to me, but I've brought a group of other founders where we just like, there's a lot of intel shared about, you know, this is what the market's like at the moment. This is what, you know, even when you get to terms, this is what's market for this certain term, whatever it is, like building your network of founders. So that also when you're having a rough week and you've had a lot of no's, then, you know, you can hit your founders like, oh yeah, we had, you know, 10 no's last week. Don't worry about it. You'll get them next week kind of thing. And I think that's, that's probably more important than having a singular strategy. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'd almost say that even founders who've done it a few times, will have seen it less than investors. If you can find an independent VC, if you have a friend who is a VC, <laughs> ask them what the, the latest and greatest tactic is because they're, they're the ones who are seeing 
loads of founders going out and, and running fundraising processes. But yeah, su- super interesting. So, so going back to sort of your business in particular, have you found there have been any challenges kind of specifically with starting an insure tech business? What have been the real, the really difficult things on your journey so far? I would say the standard startup challenge is always distribution. Like how, how do you crack distribution? So I certainly spend a lot of my time, we have a big team here who thinks like about that every day. And it's like, how do you differentiate? How do you communicate how you're different? How do you get in front of people economically? Like that is the obsession that you have. But I think that's not unique to a starting an insure tech. There is another thing that makes InsureTech harder, which is about the supply side. So there's this weird dynamic in insurance where <clears throat> I basically have to partner with, generally speaking, people who are the incumbents. So uh, every time I write an insurance policy, I might sell it for five pounds, but the person can turn around the next day and claim two million pounds. So I can't balance sheet that myself. I've got to work with a possible third party. And by the way, they're like, I'm kind of interested in working, you know, with innovative companies, but oh, you haven't raised any money. Oh, you haven't proven anything. Oh, come back to me in a couple of years. Like that would definitely in the beginning was like a very kind of constant story. So you almost needed to get investment from your suppliers in in a way, which is a kind of slightly weird thing in the industry. You couldn't, you know, it's not like e-commerce where you just you know fly to China, find a factory to get to build your things, and then you start selling them. So managing that supply and you know getting your head around it has been probably one of the toughest things. Good news is now massive barrier to entry. So there there have actually been very few fast followers in our space, which we're kind of grateful for. And you know there's a few businesses a bit like ours globally, but it's a reasonably small number because of this this supply side challenge. So it didn't feel like it at the time, but it's a blessing looking back um, that it was that it was so hard. Jimmy, so what were your after? You, so you raised money from Angels. You and Greg work on the product proposition. Well, who were your first hires beyond you guys, and what did you get right or and maybe wrong in the early days with hiring? It's such a key theme with all of our founder, I guess. So our first employee is still with us. So months before Greg and I paid ourselves a penny we like put some of our savings into the company and started paying another engineer so that we could get moving a bit faster on the product build. Because actually our product is pretty complex, so it is quite engineering heavy. So that's where we started. The first couple of engineers, were, our first couple of hires were all engineers. Uh, and he's now our head of engineering. So we hired well. So it was a good start. The next couple of people we hired actually didn't last that long, so maybe we won't, we won't give ourselves too much credit. But <clears throat> I think, you know, one of the... Things and it was again slightly unique to us in that because of this real supply side challenge, the first sort of six months, 12 months, quite slow, where it was about getting a supply base, getting regulated, which is obviously a difficult thing, building this quite complex platform. So it was mostly like engineers doing stuff and then occasionally like submitting stuff to the FCA. So I had some time. And what I did then that I'm very thankful we did and would definitely recommend every founder kind of corners off some time to do in the very early days is I wrote down what I wanted our culture to be like. I wrote down like really simple stuff, like how I wanted us to set objectives as a business. I wrote down how I wanted our review process to work. And I thought through all those things and I talked to other businesses about how they were doing it. And broadly speaking, those work you know, the same now as they did then. Like we've tweaked them obviously. And you know, as we've got bigger, things have evolved. But 
broadly speaking, that kind of framework is still there. That has made life so much easier as we've scaled. And like you do your VC round and you, you hit these big inflection points where it's like, oh crap, we need to hire like, you know, 10 people this week. Uh, and the last thing you want to be doing is hiring 10 people a week and rewriting your recruitment policy and your hiring policy and your culture deck and all that stuff at the same time. It's just really, really tough to do. So I think if you can get some of those like fundamentals out there early, that's really helpful. And I, I think it depends what kind of founder you are as well, right? So like now there's loads of really good open source stuff out there. So I think, for example, the Monzo guys have open source a load of their kind of internal documents like that that are really you know, kind of helpful to build on. From my point of view, one of the reasons I started a business is because I wanted to build a unique culture and I wanted to do people differently. And so we come up with our own version of OKRs. We come up with our own version of review processes. Nothing is taken from anything. You can't use any software because it doesn't integrate. We like, have to have all our own stuff. But that was really that was really important to me. If not, you know, if if that's not your thing, then you can do things a different way. But for us, that was that was big. Can you go into that at all? How what was your people vision and how did you execute on it? Yeah, so um, it, driven by context. So you know, both Greg and I had seen and been in organisations that were really high growth, where we did a lot of hiring, and we loved that. I mean, that was one of the reasons we started the business because. Like having this thing where you're constantly hiring, you're constantly getting new, fresh people in who are super enthusiastic. It's just really fun. And there's definitely a muscle for hiring, like just knowing that you have to allocate 30, 40% of your time to hiring. Like that, if you work in a normal company, that's not, that's weird. So like, but have, having that kind of gene, I think what we'd seen in a lot of companies was that, especially in like high performing cultures, what you can what can happen is bad behavior can be tolerated from really talented people. And actually you can be very, very difficult to work with, but perform and get rated and paid very highly, uh, whilst frankly not being very nice, uh, or not looking after your colleagues very well. And I guess that was the one thing that we wanted to we want to have a really high performing culture, but not have that. And so from very early, we had this hypothesis that we could hire an entire team of high performing, really nice people. And that's, that's what we do. I mean, it's incredible when people join, they're like, oh, you told me about this, but it really is true. Everyone is so nice here, um, almost painfully nice. What's been interesting about that is uh, high-performing, nice people tend to have quite common traits. Um, so I tell the team this, so it's not like speaking out of school, but like, they're all a bit new off it. So they all like really want loads of feedback. And so actually there is like this direct consequence of only hiring really nice, uh, ambitious people is that they, yeah, just constantly feedback hungry. So we've had to set our whole culture out. Like everyone's getting feedback almost daily, but written feedback probably once a month, definitely once a quarter. And so we're just like much more on some of that stuff than others, because that's the, I guess the kind of the basis on which the whole company's built. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there is a strong correlation between neurotic people and high-performing people, but that's probably something for another conversation. Sort of moving the conversation on slightly, and something that you touched on a bit earlier was kind of around how do you scale economically and how do you acquire new customers economically? I'm actually just kind of fascinated myself because episode one, we mainly do B2B investing, so we don't see a huge amount of 
huge number of companies sort of going from early stage to you know through, through to much later stage and so we don't see how those sort of numbers scale i wonder how what that journey has looked like for you because of course it's so important for investors to see great cac to ltv for, for listeners who don't know what that is that's cost to acquire a customer versus their lifetime value but yeah it's super important for the investors or at least to have belief in where those numbers are going to go um, so yeah, just keen to understand how, as you scale, how, how do you keep those numbers really compelling and think about kind of increasing that further? That's a big, it's a big question, Heta. <laughs> how many hours you got? So like one of the things and one day when I, you know, I'm not really busy, busy with the business, I'll write an extensive blog post about this. But I, I genuinely feel that people are too obsessed with unit economics in the first phases of businesses. And they expect to get seed deck where it's all, all proven out. And certainly that's just not been our experience. So basically what we've done all along is painted this vision of how we get to really strong economics. And our economics are really strong now, but that's because over time we've really iterated on retention. We've really iterated on average basket size. We have thought about how we expand from kind of, you know, lower spend customers to higher spend customers. We thought about how our product works in different customer segments. And that has moved significant like you know four acts five acts over time is like you you can make those sorts of changes and i think you know if we had investors who who were just like i can't see how these two numbers add up right now then you know the, well, there, there were those people right? and they said no to us so um like there but fortunately there are investors who can sort of see a bit further along along the line and i think you know if anything you can actually write a mathematical proof that Sometimes it makes sense to blast through your unit economics a bit in the early days because your people burn is so much more. So you, if you're building a tech company, you've probably got engineers, you've probably got product people, you might have data scientists. They are not contributing usually directly to growth, right? They're building this platform that allows you to grow very, very quickly, but they are a fixed cost and they will burn your cash. And so sometimes it is rational to get your revenue growing more quickly at tighter you know, you know, maybe it's you know not negative LTV cap, but two to one instead of three to one or whatever. It's actually, if you do the maths, economically rational with the runway that you have to grow quicker and and so you can amortize more of that cost. So one is I encourage all seed investors out there to put your economics like to one side as often as possible. I think, you know, for, for us, what I was trying to encourage people to do is like look at the economics of the big players in our space and and they they are profitable right so um and in some cases highly profitable and so like let me tell you how okay let's start with there's a really profitable player in the space i'm going to look in detail at their unit economics and the way that stacks up and i'm going to tell you how i'm going to beat them on every metric over time using technology etc but i think sometimes that that can be the discussion but but yeah i would say actually Sort of weirdly, the, the logic some people have is that it gets only gets worse over time, and then our experience very definitely has got a lot better. Yeah, that that's great advice. I think that looking at incumbents and sort of making them your reference point is actually just a really great idea because theoretically, if you have a better brand, if you're smarter about things, all of these they should add up to in the long run, you know, having better unit economics. So it is. It's part of it. It's painting the vision, right? As is as is so often the case in these things. Yeah, and I think uh, what's, what people look at too rarely is gross margin. And often, like, the ultimate profitability of a business is, is by what, what the gross margin is. So, 
and you can actually get a view of that pretty quickly. And then, you know, a lot of the, you should be able to get rid of, you know, you shouldn't have to have like call centers for people, like I said, so you can take that kind of, you know, fixed cost out or whatever, and then change the whole economic stack. But to an extent, there's only so much you can do on gross margin. So if you really understand the gross margin of your space, then that really helps. Yeah, I do also think there's a lot of the seed consumer investors in the UK do lack a bit of conviction. And so they try and use these like series A metrics at seed stage and they miss out on, I think, bigger opportunity, higher risk, higher reward deals than maybe the ones that have got their unit economics right earlier, but there's less barriers to entry. And so they've kind of done it quickly and there might only be a 50 to 100 million pound business rather than a full-blown global unicorn. And I do think there's a problem in the UK consumer space around that. And it's interesting to see that you're, you're from your experience that you can get those unit economics better as you scale, as you optimize, as you iterate through software, which is the whole point of venture capital essentially is to invest, invest, invest into something that is then very defensible. And so just on metrics, apart from kind of LTV to cap ratios, is there a North Star metric that you guys have? And which other metrics have you maybe measured for a period and then dropped because they weren't that useful? Any kind of vanity or useless metrics, in your opinion, that you would advise founders from kind of avoiding? So um, to be careful, I'm not going to get my investors to kill me about some of this stuff. So until recently, we didn't really track unit economics that much internally at least so we'd report to our investors i i would you know have a close handle on it but i think it can be quite a difficult abstract metric for the team and sometimes just simplifying things is a lot easier so you know for a long time and it's, and it's getting more sophisticated now but for a long time the north star we gave people was just as many customers as possible that's it Go and find us more customers. Go and find us places we can find customers. Because, you know, and, and those customers may have had different retention profiles and different average production values or, or whatever. And you can, you know, if you find a pool of new customers, like it's like, let's go and find the pool of new customers. If they're good customers, great, we'll have loads of them. If they're rubbish, we'll stop. But just team, go and find us some customers. And that's a really simple message rather than like, oh, the gross margin in this section of customers and their retention rate on a three-year basis is like, people just can't understand that you know, if they're not finance people. So I think that, that would be the one thing is like, if you can possibly get it down to literally one metric as much as possible, that is really, really helpful. And is there anything that we have, we have tracked that we shouldn't have done? I think um, perhaps I'll put it a slightly different way. So I guess I was consulting background, very, very numbers driven. We're very, very data driven here. And we, you know, we always try and make decisions with data as much as possible. And we're very particularly, I think one of the mistakes you can make as a startup is not understanding statistical significance. So two numbers are different. Are they really different or is it just random variation? And the trouble is when you're at a startup and the numbers are small, especially in consumer, like you, you can have data at the wazoo, right? So you can look at two things and go, yeah, this was definitely better than that one because it's 40% better. And you're like, well, the sample size is eight. Like, th this means nothing. This is the same as random variation. So I think one of the things we did quite well was actually say, we basically started, I remember the first three or four like monthly meetings we had, I made the guys make a, like a deck with all these like slides in it and all these numbers. And then 
they didn't really move very much. To be honest, they were a bit depressing because we weren't going as fast as we like right at the beginning. And we were learning nothing because nothing was statistically significant. So we changed it to like, right, what are we going to do? In, in, you know, what, what is that? Like, we know that if we build these products for these customers over this cadence, that, that should deliver the plan that we want to build. So we're much more focused on, have I done this thing? Has this shipped? Has I, have I got this supplier signed up? And then I think if you can do those things and they're the right things, right? So there's a bit of like, you're choosing the right stuff to do. But if you do those things, the numbers should take care of themselves. So being very alert to statistical noise, I guess is probably one of the, one of the big things that we learned. Yeah, it's great. And Jimmy, just as we draw the episode to a close, I just want to ask where you see urban jungle in kind of five, 10 years. Do you think it will still be contents insurance? Will it have branched out? What are you excited about? So we've already branched out. So we do home insurance now. So we do, do everyone. So I guess you know, one of the things we've, we've always thought is trying to make the platform as applicable to everyone as possible. And we talked about a little bit about how that's really driven our metrics, finding like new pools of customers in, in new places. So ultimately the vision is all insurance to everyone everywhere. That's what we're, what we're trying to build. And we have thought very carefully about the proposition to just not exclude people and sort of not put barriers in the way of anyone buying. So we want to be, you know, uh, we're not for everyone, we're not designed for everyone. Like we are typically designed for slightly younger customers, but everyone's welcome. And we want everyone to be welcome for every product. So uh, I guess we're blessed that we are in these massive domestic markets. So you don't need to do 17 countries to make, make a really, really big business. In fact, you know, there have already been built plenty of insurtechs in insurtech unicorns that are single country, right? So I think you've had maybe one or two on the podcast as well. So that's nice. That that kind of, you know, it, it makes stuff easier to build. But yeah, help, helping more people with their insurance in more categories is the plan. Awesome. Well, it's a, it's a great vision and we wish you all the best with it. Jimmy, we'd like to wrap things up by doing our dinner party guest game, which you may have heard on a few other episodes. So if you were to have dinner with three people, anyone in the world, who would they be? Yeah, so you prepped me before this. So I have thought, have I think about it. Don't like really talking about work at dinner is what I decided. So I want to talk about, my, about things that I love or are interested in at dinner. So number one, it's a bit of a thanks task at the moment, but I'm a big Welsh rugby fan. So I'd probably have Warren Gatland over for dinner and talk about the glory years of Welsh Grand Slams over dinner. Big into adventurous travel, particularly overland. So I think Michael Palin has done a lot of really super interesting stuff. I want to talk to him about going around World Nature Days. And then also really into outdoorsy camping stuff and I've always loved Rainier's. So he would be he'd be my three. So it's an interesting, like slightly weird three, but Well, Jimmy, those are great answers. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. Yeah, great stuff. That's it for this week. I hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode. Thankfully, we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week, every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RidingUnicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.